This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Professor Matthew Silver. Professor Silver is at the Max Stern Israel Valley College and also a professor at the University of Haifa in Israel. And today, we're going to talk about his later publication, Zionism and the Melting Pot, Preachers, Pioneers, and Modern Jewish Politics. The book was published in 2020 by the University of Alabama Press. Matthew, welcome. Hello, happy to be here. Now, my first question is just to you know kick off the conversation is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and also how was the book conceived? Okay, I'll uh, try, try to keep it brief and not talk about myself too much and talk more about the book. Um, I guess uh, I'm sort of a hybrid between the United States and Israel. Uh, did uh, undergraduate work in the, in the U.S. and my graduate work and my teaching, my professional work, has been in Israel. I guess just deriving from my experiences and natural concerns, given my identity, I, I work a lot on American Jewish history, on Zionism, other kinds of issues in modern Jewish history, um, Anybody who looks at this uh, new book will notice that I'm also very interested in literature. I've written a bunch of stuff in Hebrew and in English um, on American Jewish organizational leaders, on um, early American Jewish responses to Israel, including the novel Exodus. Um, I guess the two projects that this is most related to in terms of my own academic work uh, one is in because of the anomalies of the COVID period, I kind of knocked off three books in a year or two. Uh, I've been working on a long project on uh, the history of the Galilee um, because I was a co-founder when my kids were in elementary school of an Arab Jewish school 20, 25 years ago. And I had this long IOU that uh, at some point, because there really isn't a a kind of multicultural approach to Jews, uh, uh, Muslims, Christians, other groups in the Galilee. And that came out uh, the last year. And it's sort of the opposite methodology of the book we're talking about today in that I'm looking at cultures, monotheistic cultures, kind of from the outside, how they relate to one another, how they and, and, and how outsiders see them and insiders. Uh, this current book is very much how Jews are developing their own ideologies, really looking very closely at the Jews' kind of internal 
conversation, but this is related to that Galilee book in that in the discussions and putting your own kids into an elementary school, with all of the anxieties and misunderstandings that there are in Israel. The one thing that I, I really came to become very convinced is that you have to take your own sides and the other side's nationalism very, very seriously. You have to look for the roots and try to be patient and understand why people are adapting these roles rather than the significant but ultimately dead-end kinds of arguments that everybody's always bickering about. In today's headlines, you know, who, who shot the Al Jazeera journalist? Um, that isn't going to end. The kinds of discussions we had in this Arab Jewish school about whether Muslim and Christian Arab Palestinian students would stand up when a siren comes through the Jewish memorial. Those things about context don't make any sense. And the other book uh, in Hebrew um, called In the Service of the West or something like that um, has the same kind of analytic apparatus as the book that we're talking about today. I divide Jewish modern history into kind of subgroups, more westernized compared to more traditional subgroups. And that book chases Jews literally around the globe. And it has this kind of heretical thing where I talk about Jews in Islamic lands and Jews in Christian lands in Europe and North America. When they did a kind of little symposium on it in Haifa University, they had to bring in a scholar who does Jews in Islamic lands and a scholar who does Jews of Poland, which I found uh, very flattering. Um, but that book is liable to the criticism, talking about the Hebrew book, that it just is going all over the place. So the idea of the current book is to take the two ideologies and communities I know most well, both as a scholar and as and from my own personal experience, um, the background ideology of what becomes a state of Israel, Zionism, and um, American Jewish uh, ideologies, and really take this model, Easternized, Westernized versus more traditional Jews, and, and look at them in a specific time period and look at what is causing these ideologies uh, to be created, both to tell a kind of narrative story. You know, you can read my book on one level of just what happens to Jews in North America and in, in late Ottoman uh, Palestine and in the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe in a very defined uh, time period. Uh, but you can also look at it at trying to look at, at Jewish history in a different sort of way. First of all, thank you for already summarizing uh, part of your argument. Now, you're looking at, uh, in the new book, Zionism and the Melting Pot, you're looking at three modes that helped the development of Jewish politics. And I found them extremely fascinating. Preachers, pioneers, and I also would include these figures of uh, the emissaries, particularly from the 1870s to the time of um, the outbreak of World War I. Now, can you elaborate a little bit more on your argument and what is the role of these individuals? Great. It's a great question. Um, and I really wanted to write a book that has a very clear kind of argument and, you know, you can latch on to the, the kinds of phenomena that the author is talking about. Whether or not the reader agrees with you in the end is, is a matter of choice and taste, I suppose. The argument is that going into modern times, and this book is, is beginning to focus in the 1870s, which is really an age when Jews are being and becoming secularized all over the place. And 
Jews are divided in, into groups, um, and it happens very clearly when Jews are beginning to, to come to America, to New York, where you have more Americanized Jews who are greeting Jews who are more traditional, have more roots still in Jewish tradition, and have become less Americanized. And that's also happening in the in the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire. To some extent, it's also happening in what Jews call the Yishuv, the pre-state community of, of Ottoman Palestine. All sorts of tensions between these these what I call Eastern and Western uh, groups, and all sorts of um, forms of looking for ways of to express kinds of solidarity. Now, the argument in the book is that what is what are modern Jewish ideologies? They're um, groups of ideas and symbols that enable these two kinds of groups to communicate to one another, to work out their tensions, and eventually. And, you know, I have a very clear stopping point in this book, 1908, eventually having a very clear kind of agenda in terms of what the ideology is pointing you to do, as in the Zionism case. And I think also in terms of what I'm calling in the melting pot case, which is just an idea of how Jews become Americanized, but hopefully also retain something of their Jewish ideology. And the argument is that of all, I mean, and, you know, if you study Jewish history and if you even look at the Jewish world today, there are always a lot of isms out there and ideas and both within the religious and other kinds of frameworks. But I'm arguing that the only ideologies that would work were ones that were based on traditional roles in Jewish society and mostly religious one of them are these ideas of, of this, this role of preachers, which are called the matifim in, 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 in Hebrew, and who would go around from communities and begin to talk and, and preach in terms of a vision by the 1870s because of things that were happening in Russian and Jewish life, beginning to use symbols of return to Zion. And that becomes more of a reasonable kind of impossibility for increasing numbers of Jews in Eastern Europe. Um, but the place where this very novel idea, I mean, Jews have been talking about it for 2,000 years, returning to Zion, but the idea of actually doing it, the only way that the, 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 the fears and the misunderstandings and, the, and where the symbols would make sense were in this kind of traditional role. And where is the preacher doing his work in a synagogue? Um, which is a very different lay way of looking at the origins uh, of Zionism, which is traditionally told in terms of sort of grand events in, in Middle or Western Europe, the Dreyfus Affair, and Westernized Jews like Herzl have, have an, an, an agenda. The other two um, kind of ideological pillars I talk about in this book, one are the emissaries, which has a, has a term in Hebrew with enormous resonance, uh, shlichim, a kind of semi-Jewish missionary who's, again, very important in terms of the credibility and the understanding that a Jew who wouldn't be like Matthew Silver in the year 2022 with a different kind of educational horizon or mindset, but a very traditional Jew had a different set of, of suspicions or willingness to, to listen, openness. It's very important that these emissaries who become modern, and if you speak to any a Jewish person today, yeah, or certainly in Israel, the idea of a shaliach is somebody who's preaching Jews to come, who's working in a community, say, in North America, and trying to 
in any way possible, manipulative or otherwise, to convince Jews to come back as a Zionist ideology would see it to live in Israel. Uh, and the other group, which are our emissaries today, are the Chabad religious groups who are working to uh, get Jews to return uh, to their religion. But these sort of shlichim, before it becomes defined as kind of pro-Israel lobbying, are doing all sorts of things in the Jewish world by the mid-19th century. They're creating schools to Europeanize Jews in North Africa for, for various Jewish organizations. They're all over the place. And they become, the, the emissaries themselves become very important facilitators and mediators of new Jewish ideologies. And they're ones of the groups of the heroes of this book are the ones who are rooted between, they themselves might be westernized Jews, but they're working with the traditional groups of Jews, which I'm calling Eastern Jews. They, they, these, these figures who are working within traditional Jewish modes but are in the sort of the middle between more traditional, more modern groups, they're the ones who become the kind of the fountains from which new Jewish ideologies spring. And, and the third pillar you mentioned, and which I emphasize in the book, of the idea of Jewish pioneers, which might be the most fascinating of, of the three, because on the one hand, it's a very new thing. I mean, since when in the Middle Ages, you find Jews working the land and farming and all the way modern Zionist ideology began to um, idealize and turn these into kind of uh, canonical uh, kinds of uh, figures. That seems like something in contrast to the other two modes I talked about isn't something that's necessarily in traditional Jewish society, but in a way it really is. I mean, you know, what's an older, what what in the world in Jewish culture is an older idea than a Jew being a, a farmer in, in, in Palestine? Um, we're about to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, which is all about agriculture and Jews uh, being on the land. And also I argue in the book that um, pioneering Jewish ideas, not just within the Zionist movement, and just not, and not just contained within the Eretz, the late Ottoman Palestine land of Israel in context, those ideas of Jewish pioneering had been kicking around for 100 or 200 years before the Zionists started to do it in the late 19th century. So they, like these other two pillars, have a, have a, large, a large kind of layers of meaning that Jews are beginning to reinterpret by the, the late 19th century. I guess that, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> It does indeed. And now I have a question about uh, some of the concepts that you already mentioned. Now, in your book, there are three central ideas, uh, modernization, melting pot, and then the concept of Zionism, which by then was uh, still an emerging ideology. And as you mentioned earlier, it's one of the various isms. There is no one version of Zionism, but there are several. So I was wondering what kind of definitions of these terms you used uh, in your book? Uh, wow, okay. Um, let's try to relate them to one another as I, as I give uh, in kind of the short and the long answer uh, to, to, each, to each of them. Um, Zionism, uh, uh, I guess, in sort of everybody's mind is the idea that Jews, uh, wherever they are, and particularly in response to external events, mostly anti-Semitism, and can and should return to their ancestral homeland. 
in the land of Israel, whose borders are still being uh, contested. In, in, but Zionism also breaks into in, in various kinds of streams. Uh, people in the world today are talking in, in about uh, religious Zionists who are in the settle move, settlement movement, who have in differing ideas of, of what a state should be, whether based on, on religion rather than kind of a liberal democratic model. There are other streams of Zionism in Israel today, where a country which has a, a lively debate, as you and the listeners here know. In the, the period of, of the book that I'm writing about, there were already different streams uh, of Zionism. Herzl has a very political idea of creating a Jewish state, which doesn't necessarily, he's not very concerned about the cultural content uh, of the state, the language, the role of religion, and so on. Very much in contrast to a sort of great Eastern European rival whose name, adopted name in Hebrew is Ahada Am, whose idea is that resettlement in the ancestral homeland will never be a political solution to the Jews for various reasons. The Ottomans don't really want the Jews to come. He's one of the first Zionist interlocutors who talks about the fact that there happens to be another people in the land. So Ahad Am's idea is that you want to create a kind of exemplary Jewish culture that will fan out and inspire Jewish and Gentile communities elsewhere in the world. And there's already in this period a religious Zionist movement called the Mizrahi movement, which is very much like religious Zionism today and very much unlike religious Zionism today. One of the ironies of the time period I'm talking about toward the end of the time period, there's this great debate in the Zionist movement about whether or not the Jews should settle under English England's auspices in East Africa, the so-called Uganda proposal, 1903-1905. And at that point, most religious Zionists in the Mizrahi movement actually were in favor of Jews resettling in some sort of national collective outside of the land of Israel, which is not something one would associate with religious Zionism today. That's all the kind of Zionist history 101, but let's put it in the discursive context of the book that I'm writing. I make a different sort of argument. My argument is that Zionism evolves in a kind of revivalist, getting back to your roots or not losing your roots, a kind of a framework in the 1870s, 1880s in the Pale of Settlement in the the Russian Empire, because uh, believe it or not, you know, with all of the kind of stereotypes we have of what life for Jews and others must have been like in the undemocratic, illiberal authoritarian Russian Empire, there's already evidence that it's going to become possible to assimilate in some sense in, in, the, in, in the Russian Empire. Jews are moving into the cities. There have been some very important studies also in English, Beyond the Pale, by a man named Nathans is one of them. And uh, the Jews are beginning to, to become threatened. Uh, the traditional Jews uh, in, are beginning to become threatened by the same processes that are worrying or enticing Jews outside of Russia, secularization, assimilation, and so on. And for them, Jewish preaching really becomes in opposition, opposition to a formally defined Jewish enlightenment, modernization, 
semi-assimilatory movement in the Russian Empire and elsewhere in Europe. It called the Haskalah, just a Hebrew term that would mean Jewish enlightenment in modernization. And that's really where Zionism comes from. And if you think about it, it's not too different from what's going to attract very different kinds of figures in the United States to Zionism, people who would never pack up and move into Palestine, what is now Israel, like the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was a Zionist. But to use this idea of a return as a break against assimilation, against modernization. The other two terms you mentioned, one is modernization, which I think that you know everybody kind of associates with technological advance in um, a kind of liberal citizenship state model um, that emerges from the French Revolution, which is in a way very enticing to Jews, but also very threatening because the modern nation state is a nation state not of Jews by its definition, France, England, the United States. But this book very aggressively challenges the idea that modernization is a one-way process or one-way ticket to secularization. It's obviously not. Look at the Jewish world today and how many people are becoming kind of neo-Orthodox. I declare in the preface to this uh, the book that Jewish history is not being written today with the idea that in 20 or 30 years, perhaps the majority of Jews, most Jews today live in the United States and Israel, um, will be traditional or or orthodox in some sense, perhaps not a majority, but a, a very large number of them, which makes you think about what modernization is all about. So the simplest definition I can give to you in terms of how I'm looking at it in this book is how Jews are going to adapt to the challenge of becoming integrated in the new states and that evolved in Europe and also in North America in, in the period of the French Revolution and after. Melting pot uh, in, in, is very, very important to, to the book. I'm using it in a very broad sense of how um, Jews come to terms with the idea of becoming American and the ideas that they begin to associate with and develop it, it becomes so interesting and intriguing to non-Jews in America that uh, in, uh, the melting pot becomes kind of a quintessential American social political theory, well beyond the issues of what these hundreds of thousands of, of, of East European Jews who are on the move in the period of this book, 1870s in, until the uh, early 20th century. Um, but... In, in contrast to a lot of the ways people think about the melting pot is this kind of coercive, you Americanize yourself to the point where you forget what it means to have been an Irish Catholic or, 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 or a Russian Jew, an East European Jew. I'm not really using it in that sense. I'm using it as a theory of how an uh, immigrant uh, society, in this case, Jewish society, can come to terms with, with America And ideas of a melting pot that are more closely related to multicultural ideas today, wherein ethnic and other forms of group are retaining their own sort of original identities, somewhat in opposition to a very Americanized identity. Toward the end of the period that I'm talking about, there already are these ideas of of, uh, uh, ethnic culturalism, Horace Kalin, all these cultural pluralism, Kalin calls it. 
I see that really as the same kind of thing as a melting pot. So I'm defining melting pot here as any ideology of Jewish adaptation in America. Picking up from your, your last point, I'm curious about something. What was the relationship between Zionism and American identity? You talk about a number of characters throughout the book, and so I was wondering how did some of these characters discussed in your book relate uh, to these terms, to Zionism and American identity? How did they merge these two ideologies? How did they bridge them? Right. It's a great question, and I'm very happy for the question, because that's one of the things that was most important to me that I found most interesting and that's really driving, you know, anybody who writes a book, you're always going to have the moments where you're pulling your hair out. You want to burn the manuscript. Um, but this is really one of the things that uh, I really wanted to, to get across in, in a book. It, we're living in a time in where the idea of Jewish nationalism and the idea of Jewish integration in America are very much thought of as polar opposites, as melting pot is a very different agenda uh, to Zionism since the 1980s, when a lot of controversies about America, about Israel were particularly distressing or perplexing uh, to American Jews, the who is a Jew controversy in terms of granting Israel, granting or not granting recognition to non-Orthodox and streams of Judaism in America, the first intifada, and the Jonathan Pollard spy scandal. So there's this whole corpus of books that are out now about distancing, that these are two communities that, that are learning not to live one another. In some ways, that would make my life a little bit, or make my own life a little bit easier uh, living in Israel, but uh, I can also find many different uh, political or ideological reasons why I find that a, a difficult scenario to come to terms with. But when I write books, I try to be as objective as possible. The last book in the kind of somewhat apologetic frame of in, uh, of talking about U.S. American Jews in Israel is by a man named Daniel Gordas, who takes it as a kind of fact that the Zionist model is very different from the liberal democratic model in, in the United States and the way U.S. Jews and Israelis are going to have to live with each other in decades to come. And Gordas very much wants them to live together. It's a very, it's a book with a very clear agenda, is to recognize a sort of existential difference and political difference between the two communities. And I'm coming here as a historian. I'll, I'll never say that anybody is wrong. Um, that's not the way I'm trained to do it. And I think any historian who does that is, is really ultimately going to put his or her foot in his or her mouth. But I'm saying, look, let's look at the history, and there are ways in which that way of looking at it are totally counterintuitive. One is that there has never been, a in the United States, an ethnic group which is mobilized for an overseas community you know, the way the American Jews have for Israel, which suggests that there is a kind of innate connection uh, between uh, the two communities. Um, there are books coming out that are viewing um, the Jewish lobby as a more kind of manipul manipulative kind of artificial kind of way that is linked uh, the communities. But when you really begin to think about it, you can't explain these connections in along just solely in terms of this kind of Jewish lobby uh, way of looking uh, at it. So my book's argument, it's time to get back to my book, um, is I'm really saying two things. I'm saying that 
both what I'm calling the melting pot in this broad sense that I just tried to explicate and Zionism are working on the same problem. What's going to happen to these hundreds of thousands of millions of Amer- of Russia, of East European Jews who are in the move on this period? They're realizing that life in, in the Pale of Settlement for them, at least many Jews did stay there, but life for them has become intolerable either for political reasons, the shorthand being pogroms, persecution against the Jews, or for other reasons of poverty and not having a very clear social status, as some historians have been pointing out. And, you know, these ideologies, Zionism and the melting part, are are ways of trying to uh, give answers to that dilemma. But here's something that I'd like the listeners to think about. If you want to think about the sort of Hall of Fame American Jews, one after another, there are also Zionists. If you talk about the um, matriarch of social political ideology, the melting pot in America in the 20th century, you go to the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty in 1903 and you read the New Colossus sonnet written by Emma Lazarus, an American Jewish poetess and writer of Sephardic ancestry. Emma Lazarus is a impassioned Zionist who at the end of her life writes a book called Epistle to the Hebrews. If you switch forward beyond the time frame of my book, Louis Brandeis, and the Jew, his, the archetypal figure of making it in America, becomes appointed to the Supreme Court, and is also a Zionist. And I go through this again and again in the book, that there are these figures much lesser known, one of the kind of Jewish pioneering figures from what the Israelis call the first Aliyah, is a man named Israel Belkind that I talk about in the book. At one point, on his way coming to Ottoman Palestine, he meets a ambitious school teacher, soon to be journalist and writer, whose name is Abe Khan, who becomes the most important figure in the immigrant culture of New York at the turn of the 20th century, and the editor of the largest foreign language newspaper in the United States, what we called in Israel the Jewish, in what we called in English the Jewish Forward. Um, Belkin, the Zionist, Khan is considering coming to coming to Ottoman Palestine. Belkin convinces him to go to the United States and develop certain Jewish agendas there. So in so many ways, with so many personal and organizational examples, you're seeing these two ideologies overlap. And, and the question then becomes why? I think my, my study provides a possible answer to that. Jews have a modernization issue, including in the Russian Pale of Settlement in the 1870s. And what does Zionism become for them in a secular age when the traditional Jewish religious observance isn't going to work as an identity anchor for all the Jews in in the world? What is going to work as a a break, as, as as a hedge against total modernization? This idea of return. And this idea of return, which it can, which is Zionism, in a sense, and I think it's precisely because American Jews like Brandeis knew how to make it in America, but could see the ethnic cost for that. Um, they also become interested in Zionism, and I think in different, under very different circumstances and def- very different sociologies, the same thing holds true uh, with pro-Israel work among American Jews uh, to the present day. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is a fascinating point, and one that I found the most interesting in your book, this idea about uh, Jewish consciousness um, in relation to modernization, particularly connected to... Uh, uh, Eastern Europe, something that I personally could not make uh, a, a link, but through your book, I was able then to see sort of a broader picture. I want to ask you something about uh, uh, a figure that you already mentioned earlier, the Matifim. Now, this is a crucial figure in your book. You're talking about the Matifim quite uh, uh, extensively throughout the various chapters. And for those who may not be familiar with this term, can you tell us a little bit more about... Uh, who were the Matifim? What did they do? And also, if you can give us some examples of uh, individuals. Good. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the question. I, I think one of the kind of narrative strategies from my book was to talk about sort of the high history figures that anybody who would open a book that has Zionism the title, uh, like Herzl, would expect uh, to read about, because otherwise you're going to be um, getting into sort of arcana from the sort of typical. You know, any writer is trying to figure out what does a typical reader mean in this book. But I also wanted to give the experience of um, in a book that hopefully has a style that's uh, accessible to non-specialist readers. I really wanted to get into uh, different kinds of in Jewish evidence and phenomena that would be much less familiar. And the, the Matifim become the, sort of one of the really kind of really the, the, the best example of, of what I'm trying to do in that. Um, the term it does mean, as I said, does mean preacher. Today, I think among secular Israelis, it almost has a kind of sarcastic ring to me. Don't preach to me, I guess would be kind of the English equivalent. But in the back in the day, um, coming out of um, in Talmudic, what, what was called in the West, the middle medieval uh, periods, um, you know, it's a way to communicate with Jewish communities, mostly in sacred space, in, in synagogues. Um, and to um, in, in communicate various communal roles to them, goals to them. And, but they begin to become hitched to this idea of Jewish nationalism and starting before 1881 and the rise of the persecution against political persecution, what Jews called pogroms, is always taken as the turning point towards Zionism and other Jewish ideologies. But you find these matisim on, in, in the ground well before that, five or ten years. Why did they begin to preach about the land of Israel, this notion of revival? Um, it's really because in the sort of enlightened Jews in that period in the 1870s who were interested in religious reform, a man named Lillianblum was very well known to scholars in the field. He runs around in this pre-1881 figure and tries to become um, the sort of Martin Luther of the Jews to reform Judaism because he realizes that in a very changing world, what we call Orthodox Judaism today isn't going to work for the, all of the masses of Jews. In the Eastern European context, for reasons that I, I think would be too tangential to go into now, it doesn't work. 
And this idea uh, of keeping Jews against the modernization process uh, within the fold, so to speak, by modernizing the religion, that works in the United States. And it worked to some extent in Reform Judaism begins in, in Central Europe before it gets to the United States, where it really begins to establish. It doesn't work in the Russian Empire. So what's your other idea going to be? It's going to be, let's talk about remaining Jewish by using the symbolism. You know, these people are so far away from our controversies today of the Iron Dome and who killed the Al Jazeera journalists and the West Bank and settlements. I mean, it's not at all on that level of detail. It's all very symbolic at this phrase, but it begins to get, you ask for a couple of figures. I'll give two examples, one of the organizer, and one of a preacher himself, it begins to become organized. After the begrams in the 1880s, there's a man named Menachem Usishkin, and who begins to realize, and he himself would be, before the Herzl era, he is a Zionist. He begins to establish organizations to buy land and so on that the Zionist movement becomes very interested in. And he realizes that you can use these traditional preachers if you send a secularized modern Jew what somebody, if somebody, I think, um, and listeners who, who have less background in Zionist history, they can still imagine what the young David Ben-Gurion, who becomes Israel's first prime minister, kind of must have looked like in the early 20th century. But if you send somebody like Ben-Gurion, a very secularized figure, to talk about Zionism to these traditional Jewish communities, that's a non-starter. They're not, they're not going to understand at all where he's coming from. They're going to kick him out of the synagogue because he's, he's just too modern. So Usishkin realizes that you can use these kind of traditional preachers as a vehicle for promoting Zionism. But what's really interesting, when, when Zionism really has to put its cards on the table and after Herzl emerges on the scene and after this idea of you can go to Uganda, and mostly there's a lot of resistance among East European Jews to that idea. They want to go to the land of Israel. Um, Usishkin, uh, during the Uganda debate, revamps his whole preacher network and he starts sending secularized characters to, to preach in the synagogues in a much more scientific modern rhetoric because the Russian Jewish community has changed to some extent in this period. And these traditional preachers are have less resonance or credibility. So he uses modern figures. So you can really see this transition the, the preachers are, are, are using in, in the 1880s, 1870s, is Zionism and Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, as kind of metaphors and symbols without any clear agenda within 20 years. And the same person organizing it, Menachem Musishkin, they're talking very clearly about an agenda. We're going to go to the land of Israel. These are already socialistic Zionists. We're going to have an ideology of Hebrew labor only. This is how we're going to do it. We're not going to do it in Uganda. Let me just give you one quick example of uh, going back to the last question you asked, but now relating it to the question you asked about the Matifim. There was also a man named Svi Hirsch Maslyansky, who was one of the most famous preachers, one of the most famous Matif. He was actually called the National Preacher. He begins his career doing exactly what I just said, running around these communities, some of them in the news today because they're in the Ukraine, and and preaching about Zionist revival without getting too specific, 1880s and 1890s. 
But he ends his career in the Education Alliance in New York City, working under the tutelage of somebody else that I wrote a book about, a man named Louis Marshall, and preaching to Jews about how to Americanize. So it's the same traditional vehicle. You know, how are you going to get less modernized Jews to listen to any political agenda? You do it by using the traditional models, one of them being these preachers. But the actual contents of the ideology might be less important. Because how do you explain somebody like Maslianski, who in one phase of his career is preaching Zionism and the other career, phase of his career is, is, is preaching melting pot? Because this is an overwhelmingly complicated issue of what's going to happen to all these Russian Jews. However you want to answer the question I just asked, what I'm trying to do in this book is bring these kind of grassroots Jewish figures back into the discussion. And if you read a recent biography by one of the preeminent Jewish historians, a man named Derek, Derek Pensler about Herzl, at one point in his, his book, he uses Maslianski as this kind of comic figure who's making up these kind of mythic fibs, these kind of fables about Herzl. In the American context, it would be George Washington didn't chop down the, the cherry tree. And from that way of looking at, at Zionist and Jewish history from the, from the top to the bottom, Herzl is the guy who's, who's, who's creating Jewish history. And all of these Matifim figures are kind of irrelevant. And what I tried to look do in this book is look at the bottom up. And I actually think Maslianski is a, and the other preachers are very fundamentally important figures in Jewish history. I'm sure Derek Pensler would agree with that. It's just how you analyze these events. Actually, one of the figures that struck me the most is uh, Solomon Schechter, uh, and you discuss at length uh, this figure. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, him and also the role that he plays in your narrative? Yeah, um, I think some uh, some listeners might know that there are these things called Schechter schools. And in the United States, we were, I as a visiting professor in New England once, and I remember sending, we sent our kids to Schechter schools and remember having discussions with some of the other parents, whether they knew who this man was, and once again into Jewish history, and certainly people who were in the conservative stream of American Judaism very well, very much know who Schechter is a very revered, very kind of fundamentally important figure. The short answer to the question you asked is Schechter is the kind of in, in founding, these are very kind of masculine terms, founding father patron of the conservative stream and which of the three streams of American Judaism is is by cl- clearly the most indigenous American form is you, you could find ref- and you could find reform synagogues in in Germany before or contemporaneous as they're developing in America the same is true of Orthodox conservative Judaism, very American uh, form uh, uh, Schechter was already a revered figure because he had, in, in, in his phase from Romania, but when he was in England at Cambridge University, he becomes important for the development, uh, the discovery, who actually discovered the documents has been disputed, but this discovery, this treasure trove of um, of Cairo, um, Mediterranean jewelry, in, in perhaps a thousand years before, what's called the Cairo Genizah, these sort of secret, not secret, but but lost documents that, that Schechter and in, in, in becomes involved in the, the finding and the publicizing of that. And for that, he's a revered figure. He's brought in by the in very well-to-do Jews. I mentioned one of them, Louis Marshall, Jacob Schiff, to be the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, 
why he's important in, in my book is that the heroes and heroines in my book um, are the ones who are positioned between what I'm calling the Eastern Jewish communities, the traditional Jewish communities, and the more what I call the Western Jewish communities, the more developed. And he spends his whole career, even though he's a source of authority with his long white beard and his incomparable knowledge of, of, of Jewish tradition, lovely books, three volumes called Studies in Judaism, which I delve into a lot of uh, the essays that he writes in them. Um, he's a very conflicted individual. When he's in England, he kind of has a temper tantrum before he comes to the United States and accuses all of his westernized English-Jewish uh, colleagues, including, including Claude Montefiore, of not being the real Jews. The real Jews are these less modernized Eastern European uh, ones. And then he comes to the Jewish Theological Seminary and he apparently and he basically traces the opposite arc. He's um, trying to bring these, the, the, mostly the sons of, uh, of the immigrant Jews from what used to be called downtown Jewry, lower Manhattan, what would also be called a ghetto, uh, um, and, and Americanizing them according to a very Western, not, not entirely, Jewish Theological Seminary is always a very, very serious institution, but in some ways, uh, westernizing them, teaching them to be, training them to be rabbis who can communicate with more Americanized audiences, even physically, the Jewish Theological Seminary is uptown. So in a lot of the functions that he's, um, he's fulfilling in, in, as the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary is the opposite kind of thing, saying that the Americanized view of, of Judaism is, is an authentic thing that you have to learn. And he's, he's bringing the immigrant Jews more into the Western model. So he spends, functionally, he's spending his career really as a ping pong kind of conflicting argument of where really is Jewish authenticity and also in his writings. I, I talk about that a lot. You can see that kind of ambivalence. And the argument in the book is that um, the people who have, who have, for various reasons, the most credibility, Schechter, partly because of the Cairo finding and because of its presence and his knowledge, um, I live in Sfat, in Safed, and he was really one of the, and people have been talking about Kabbalah for centuries, obviously, in Jewish tradition, and his particular interpretation of, of what it was like in 16th century Sfat, where I'm living now, was groundbreaking. So he has a lot of authority, just in terms of his erudition and, and his intelligence. But because he's a mediator between East and West, that's the reason why uh, he's, he gets so much focus in my, in my study. And picking up on this uh, mediation between East and West, I, I was just wondering if we are right to talk about an American Jewish ideology, Western one, and a European one, perhaps more oriented towards the East, towards Russia. Is there a difference there? And if so, how does it play out? American Jewish ideology compared to other ideologies? Is that, is that, the, is that the question? Correct. Well, that's uh, <laughs> an excellent question. Uh, you're, uh, you're asking questions today that I, I, I literally know that entire seminars have, have been devoted to them in conference sessions. One of them is this issue of American Jewish exceptionalism. And, and, and in the one sense, a historian cannot place him or herself too much at variance with the way a community under study views itself. And if there's one sort of folklorish kind of way that American Jews look at themselves, and it can be summarized, 
forgive me, I, I, I always tell my students, I'm not good at, I'm a historian, not a mathematician. I don't know if this is three or four or five words, uh, but the idea that America is different, three words, uh, that's sort of the, the, the adage. And it becomes connected to sometimes you can find rabbis who, when they were giving sermons way back to Charleston, South Carolina in the 1830s, would be talking about in, in Charleston or New York City is our Jerusalem. So very much separating themselves and, and from the other flows of Jewish ideologies and Jewish experience elsewhere, the founder of the American reform movement or what the leading presence when it becomes important, Isaac Mayer Wise talked about having a very American Jewish prayer book, separating it from other you know, communities. And you can make a very strong argument that um, various structures and self-understandings among uh, American Jews really are, and the American political system um, in, in which in, when Jews are fighting in the 19th century for what they call emancipation, the conferral of rights, and even in the most democratic societies like England, they need to legislate Jew bills because it's not taken for granted that a Jew can sit in parliament or can sit on the stock market and all sorts of other in, in, in settings. That it's, it's, it would be a falsehood to say that never needs to be done in the colonies before the United States under English control and then in the United States of America, but it much lesser needs. It's a much, it, it, and it essentially doesn't need to be done because emancipation is already granted to Jews and other minority groups in the United States. There's a so-called wall of separation between church and state in religion and state. Jews don't have, there aren't chief rabbis that have a state-appointed position as they were and are in other democracies in the world. For all of these reasons, and the fact that Judaism in America filters into three defined denominations, all of these are um, reasons that give impetus to the idea that any American Jew- Jewish ideology is going to be different. And yet, if you go to any Jewish studies conference for the past five or ten years, you can find historians who are kind of chipping away at this idea and finding new forms of connection, books that are written about how Jews from a particular community in Eastern Europe, like Bialystok, an excellent book that was written by a historian named Corbin a few years ago. And there are all sorts of connections between this Jewish immigrant group. The the, the trendy word now is transnational connections. The book that I'm writing is talking about how supposedly antithetical Jewish ideologies like melting pot and Zionism have these connections that I've uh, tried uh, to talk about. Issues of what a Jewish manhood would be, Jewish masculinity, what Jewish but where Jewish women are, you can find very much connections to uh, um, uh, other um, uh, European uh, Jewish uh, communities. Even the debates that are going within the American Jewish streams, which seem to be have developed very differently, American reform really took off in places where it began to have problems, say in Germany. But the very similar debates about whether or not you should have organ music in services. So I think the more Jewish studies develops as a as a scholarly field, we're beginning to see more and more connections between American Jewish experience and other and other diaspora communities and Israel. I'm interested in the figures of pioneers. You already mentioned them. The figure of Alutzim in Israel is this figure of people coming to essentially 
uh, redeem the land and, as you mentioned earlier, also to work the lands in the uh, agricultural fields. But I had the sense that when you're talking about pioneers connected to American Judaism, there's something different. And I was fascinated by the idea that you connected these pioneers also to the myth of a Western frontier. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, these pioneers in America and the differences between them and the figure of the Alutzim that developed later on in Eretz Israel, British Mandatory Palestine, and then later on after 1948, Israel. Yeah, great question. Uh, I, once upon a time in my dissertation studies, I did a lot of work on um, on uh, American Jews who got interested in Zionism and some of them who came to live in uh, both in the late Ottoman period and in the British Mandate period. And, and you see analogies uh, which wouldn't be uh, politically correct uh, today uh, to Native Americans. Uh, you see that coming up. Of course, American Jews are very, going to be very conscious of uh, frontier uh, ideas. And once upon a time, in the days of Frederick Jackson Turner, the idea of, of a frontier was a very kind of inspiring uh, kind of notion. So when Brandeis would, would talk about um, American Zionist pioneering in that sense, it wouldn't have the same you know, connotations uh, that would have today. I mentioned the figure who came out of Eastern Europe, and he was part of the Biluim, the first uh, Aliyah, the, sort of the most ideologically conscious, a little more on the socialist. Uh, socialist pioneering doesn't pick up until the 20th century in the so-called second Aliyah. Uh, but the Biluim and the first Aliyah were sort of the most ideological group. Most of what I'm calling pioneering in a very kind of elastic, somewhat creative sense in the 1880s uh, period, and many of them are much more traditional Jews and would look to any outside observer much more like an Orthodox Jew today than somebody like myself who raised my kids on a kibbutz, um, you know, very close to, to what um, what ideas of halutzim, you know, for your listeners who don't know that sort of what came to be known as a Jewish pioneering term in these early 20th century uh, uh, settings. Um, and the idea of um, it being a kind of wild what Belkin, this, this member of the Biloim, he talks about it. He, he actually talks about reading James Fenimore Cooper and so on. The founder of Esperanto, who is in connection with these Eastern European Jews, uh, he also sometimes uh, used these kind of Western, American Western uh, frontier images. And, but what I'm interested in the book is how this pioneering model speaks to different groups of Jews. I use this kind of Western Eastern access, speaks to different kinds of Jews for different reasons, but enables them to have a common language. And in the end, inspires them to think that you can create a new kind of Jew, what you called uh, halutz. I'll give one very brief example. The Western Jew, one, there were many, Moses Montefiore, Anglo-Jewish kind of patron who visits the land of Israel seven times began to talk about pioneering and got interested in. One is kind of the patriarch of my own field, modern of Jewish history, a German-Jewish scholar named Heinrich Greitz. He begins to talk about, well, you want to have pioneers in the, because he visits uh, Ottoman Palestine, instead of these snoring, obsequious Jews who are living off charity funds. And you want to have pioneering for our own interest in the West, because you don't want the the signature Jew, 
And the signature Jew is always going to be in the land of Israel. That's how the world thinks about, you know, Jews in the days of the Bible. You don't want them a non-modern dependent uh, a kind of population. But other Jews from within the, the Yishuv, Ottoman Palestine, begin to be interested in pioneering for different reasons, because they're having conflict uh, with the Orthodox Jews here in Sfat, where I'm living. Um, and they begin to rebel against this charity network. Somebody like Belkin from Eastern Europe sees this as a very exciting model, perhaps in opposition to Russian non-Jewish groups who are going back to the land in Russia. Those people, listeners who know that story from, from the period of Alexander II in Russia. So this pioneering model takes off for very different, uh, very different reasons, very different groups uh, of Jews. But the idea of a pioneering Jew becomes the knockdown argument in the Uganda debate, which I go into very closely in my book. Why is it essential that the Zionist movement become locked in the land of Israel and isn't going to go to East Africa? And disappointing as it might be to the American Jewish novelist Michael Chabin, isn't going to go to Alaska. Why does it have to go to the land of Israel? Because that's the only place that a new Jew, rooted in land, but yet modern, a chalutz, who can be a real pioneer, it's the only place it could happen. And maybe they were right in saying that. Maybe. Now, as we wrapping up the interview, I want to ask you something about the sources that you have used for your work. And also, I'm interested about why 1908 is the end date of your work. Why that specific year? Okay, well, the source is, uh, in one of the arguments is that um, Zionism didn't come from above. It's not created inside of landmark texts. Uh, and, you know, you study any national or political movement, you're always going to be pointed to three or four founders who wrote a book. And 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 that's what what made the movement. It's it's an easy way to teach high school students, and it simplifies matters. But the argument of the book is that Zionism has a more grassroots kind of um, um, origins in Jewish religion. And one of the ways that I went about looking at is I looked at the novels that um, Jewish literati who who are lesser known, I think, to uh, readers of the book, uh, Peret Smolenskin, this fellow Lillian Boom, uh, are writing in the 1870s. And it's so clear that they don't have a way to point the Jews at that point to the land of Israel or anywhere else. They know what they don't like about traditional Jewish uh, society, but you couldn't write an ideological novel in, in, in the 1870s, certainly not from a Zionist standpoint. And so in those ways, I'm looking at literary. So for, therefore, the, the Zionism emerges from the synagogues. That's the argument of the book. But to make that argument, you need, you, read, you need to read the literary sources, which aren't sometimes easy to read. And Hebrew evolved in its own manner. 1870s Hebrew is very kind of florid and biblical with all sorts of neologisms that are kind of humorous, very primitive kind of plot structure and character development. So I use the literary sources when I'm talking about the preachers. Obviously, I'm looking at the sermons, among other things. It it sort of depends on on what I'm talking about. Some of the book turns into organizational history. So I'm I'm using the organization's sources, the debates about Uganda. You need to look at the records of the Zionist Congress. One of the chapters I most enjoyed writing in the book was about the melting pot arguments in the United States itself up to World War I. 
And, and for that, there's just a variety of things. Um, anthropological essays that Franz Boas uh, wrote in the play, The Melting Pot, that Israel Zangwill, who is the premier figure of being both the assimilationist melting pot guy and the Zionist guy in my novel, because he's literally <laughs> in both things. So I'm looking at those kinds of uh, literary things. So it's, it's mixed. Uh, I'm hopefully um, developing a kind of multidisciplinary methodology and talking about Jewish history. Uh, other people are doing that too. Of course, why 1908? 1908 is the period when you have a pronounced American Jewish in, in integration ideology pronounced on the stage by Israel Zangwill in a play called The Melting Pot. And it's also the point when this, this issue of what American, of what Jews are going to do in America and permeates into a larger question of integration in America in the melting pot in general. And the rudders that I've talked about throughout the book, preachers, pioneers, emissaries, that's no longer important. So in the American Jewish context, in terms of the pillar, analytic pillars that I'm using in, 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 in this study, when they begin to lose their, in, their, their moorings, and then I'm saying that a new form of Jewish politics and ideology, and 1908 is very important in that context. It also is in the Zionist context. You can argue about when the so-called second Aliyah, when you have these socialist Zionist pioneers who who have these ideologies which became problematic in retrospect, like Hebrew-only work, which to them made perfect sense because the anti-Semitic world is saying that Jews are parasites. So you go back to your ancestral homeland, you prove that you can work. But of course, that becomes problematic in terms of Palestinians. And, and, but once the Zionist movement has, has and, and rejected any other place, has become fully committed to, to the land of Israel, and has opened an office in Jaffa, today Jaffa, Tel Aviv, headed by a man named Arthur Rupin, who is another one of these kinds of mediating figures in my study who knows how to talk to the Russian Jewish immigrants, but also is bringing a very high modernized German Jewish, also influenced by various racial ideas and that were common when he was a student in the German in, in academia. Um, when you already have that office that opens exactly at the end point of my study, then Zionism is a committed political force, for better or for worse. I'm sure my listeners has a very different views about what, what is going to happen after 1908. But Zionism is, has locked on course in Ottoman Palestine at that point. And also these traditional roles that I've talked about in the book, Matifim and so on, they've lost their moorings also in the Zionist context. David Ben-Gurion, who is in the Galilee, I'm a very much of a Galilee person. I'm always looking for ways to bring the Galilee into what I write. He's at a lower Galilee commune called Sejera at that point. And he's already thinking about uh, Jewish defense. He's terribly disappointed that he wasn't accepted into one of the paramilitary organizations. But he's already fit, clearly thinking about how are you how what Herzl called the Jewish state how are you going to do that in Palestine he's going to create you know Jews the next tw- after World War one when they have British patronage to do this 
his labor Zionist movement is going to create kibbutzes and have an, uh, a socialized health system and a big labor union. And you're going to you know, get into all these political discussions with the British later on. That's already very different from what the Matifim are talking about in synagogues at the beginning of my study in the 1870s. So both in the American Jewish, I think in the Zionist con- context, 1908, Ben-Gurion at Sejero and Israel's Zangwell's in, in play on the stage in New York and then in Washington, the ethnicized Jewish model called the metal, met melting point and the national Jewish model called Zionism, they already are on the way to being part of a new kind of Jewish politics in 1908. This was Matthew Silver, professor of history at the Max Stern Israel Valley College and at the University of Haifa. Professor Silver is the author of Zionism, the Melting Pot, Preachers, Pioneers, and Modern Jewish Politics, published in 2020 by the University of Alabama Press. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.